So we're going to be looking at uh, Titus chapter 2. You'll find it helpful to have that open uh, in front of you. And really the passage is addressing this question, which I don't know if you've ever asked yourself. Uh, Why bother being godly? Why bother with godliness? I mean, we we talk a lot, don't we, about uh, getting saved, don't we? We talk about uh, going to heaven, you know, believe the gospel and uh, you go to heaven. Believe the gospel and you get eternal life. So why bother? If if you can just believe the gospel, why bother living a a godly life? Well, I want to say this morning, what the book of Titus begins to teach us and what it was teaching us last week is that you can't have the gospel without godliness. You can't have the gospel without godliness. It's like love and marriage. You know that song? Love and marriage, love and marriage, go together like a horse and carriage. Let me tell you, brother, you can't have one without the other. And it's like that with the gospel. You can't have the gospel without godliness. No godliness, no gospel. And if you're trying to live a godly life, and you haven't understood the gospel, you can't do it. Because the two go together. But equally the other is true as well. You can't have godliness without the gospel. No gospel, no godliness. So if you don't believe the gospel, you can't live a godly life. And if you do believe the gospel, you must live a godly life. The two of them always come together. Why is that? Well, they're both from the same source, aren't they? uh, Justification, if you like, becoming a Christian, is by faith in the gospel. And sanctification is by faith in the gospel as well. So no gospel, no sanctification, no becoming more godly. So if we profess to know the truth, then we must live out a life that fits with it, godly lives. The two come together. And what was happening on Crete was some people were claiming to be Christians, they were claiming to believe the gospel, but they weren't living godly lives. So if you look back at chapter 1, verse 16, there are people who are there saying, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. So it says they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. So Paul, as he's writing this letter, is desperate for them to understand that you can't be a Christian without godliness. We don't have an easy believism. You know, just getting saved is all that counts. Actually, being transformed matters as well. It's not just about justification, it's also about sanctification. We want to affirm this morning that we do believe that we're justified by faith. We were talking about not being able to boast before. The Lord Jesus came, died on the cross... But that faith that we have without works is dead. That's what the Bible says. Faith without works is dead. And this is Paul's reminder along those lines that what follows after we believe must be godliness. The gospel comes together with godliness. And this morning we're going to look at a bit of the motivation as well. Uh, We're going to see next week a bit more of the motivation that goes with it. But uh, the gospel changes lives. Doesn't it? That's what we believe. We believe that as Christians we are are changed. Uh, And actually it helps our evangelism. So along with uh, godliness comes effective evangelism. So let's have a look at a few of these motives. I've put a bit of a different uh, outline in your uh, notice sheets this morning. It's more of a a picture than a a, uh, normal outline that we have. But this is where we're going with it. So the top one is why. And so that you get three... Uh, ways in uh, our passage that tell you the motivations for what we're to do. Uh, it's often said, isn't it, that the Bible doesn't have 
many explicit commands to spread the gospel. And that's partly because evangelism is hard to separate from the lives that we lead. In the end, it very much is verbal proclamation. We do speak the gospel, but much more is involved. And one of the reasons that's given here is there in verse 5. It says, so that the word of God may not be reviled. There's three of them as we go through. The word of God may not be reviled. That's one of the reasons why we live a godly life. Paul's concern here is that the word wouldn't be, in modern English, you'd probably say dissed, wouldn't you? The word is blasphemed. And we don't use that word very much, do we? And we can experience this, can't we, in life, that actually when we don't live a godly life, the gospel is blasphemed, the gospel is reviled. I remember growing up uh, as a teenager, I used to listen to an album by a group called DC Talk. Have you heard DC Talk? They used to have a line in it uh, that said, the single biggest cause of atheism in the world today is Christians, who acknowledge Jesus with their mouths and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. It's just a little quote in between two of the songs, but it's always stuck with me. Uh, even as I was preparing this talk, something like that was happening. I was preparing it in a coffee, coffee shop, and I could overhear somebody talking about the fact that they used to go to church, but there had been a Christian at that church that had uh, hated women and was always on about these sorts of different things that they didn't like. I have a friend whose dad was a minister, um, and he had an affair. And this girl that I knew left the church altogether. Uh, didn't want anything to do with it. She started getting involved with witchcraft and all sorts of things. When our lifestyle doesn't match, it causes problems, doesn't it? And it's not just the leaders. How many people won't hear the word because they don't see the difference in our lives? Our words speak of holiness, but often our lives speak of compromise and fear of, of seeming weird. So we're to be godly so that the word of, word of God won't be reviled. It's to match with what we say. And then secondly, the other reason we're given is there in verse 8. That an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Now here the context is persecution. There's an opponent, there's someone coming to get them. So it's not passively ignoring Christians because they're no different, but seeking out reasons to shut them down. And what the passage is saying really is that when we live immoral lives, when we don't live out what we're going to see in a few moments' time, it's like handing ammunition to the enemy. We put a gun in his hand and say, shoot us by living godless lives. As Christians, we need to leave moral lives so that when persecution comes, they don't have ammunition to fire at us. Recently, there's a founder of a well-known power church organisation um, that produced a booklet explaining how they were being persecuted, how they were being uh, oppressed uh, by people, the actual organisation that was, was doing this. But actually, when you read into it, it turned out that the leader had twice been accused of sexual assault. And that's why people were not associating with them anymore. That could be completely false. could be genuine persecution, just made up. But I'm not naive enough to believe that it's not possible. Don't give ammo to the devil. He's looking for ways to destroy us. So it's each of our personal responsibility to make sure that doesn't happen. Leaders, yes, definitely, but members as well, people, just Christians. We don't want to, to give ammunition to the devil. Let me give you some concrete examples of how this works out. Think of Esther in the Bible. Haman wants to wipe out uh, the whole of uh, God's people, doesn't he? He wants to completely destroy them. And he says they're disobedient, they're nasty. 
But actually, the king knows Esther, doesn't he? He says, hang on. What are you saying, they're disobedient? Well, I know one. That's not true. Well, think for a second. Imagine if uh, a few years down the line, they want to kick us out of this building for hate speech. We want people to be able to say, hate speech, those guys? I know them. They looked after me when I was bereaved. They cared for me when I was in trouble. They're not the kind of people that would do that sort of thing. Our lives would be such that when people speak ill of us, they'll feel ashamed when they find out what we're really like. That doesn't mean we're, we're going to be perfect. We can't be perfect, can we? But we're not to be who they make us out to be. And then the final reason that we're given is that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Saviour. That's in verse 10. So part of our living godly lives, part of us living out what we're about to talk about in a few moments' time, is about showing the gospel to be beautiful. Not making it beautiful, but showing it off. So that word adorn, it's the word, it's where we get our word cosmetics from. Uh, it's like the idea of, of, of uh, makeup, if you like. Uh, I remember um, when Caroline and I got married. Uh, Caroline doesn't normally wear makeup. And uh, for our wedding day, obviously you, you have to, don't you? You've got to get your, your makeup on for your wedding day. And I had one stipulation uh, for Caroline's makeup, which was that it had to make her look like her. I didn't want to get to the, uh, you know, get, get to the front of the uh, aisle and uh, look, and there'd be somebody completely different at the side of me. And that's what this is like here. It's not about making the gospel beautiful, but actually adorning it, showing the beauty that's already there. When we live out the gospel rightly, we show the truth of the gospel for what it really is, beautiful. So the truth of the gospel becomes attractive when it's adorned with godly living. If it's adorned with bad living, then it makes it look fake and untrue, doesn't it? If it's adorned with harsh legalism, then it makes it look harsh and unforgiving. But when it's rightly lived out, it's one of the greatest evangelistic tools known to man. And it makes the gospel look beautiful. And so it should do, because it is. So what is this right living uh, that we're talking about? Well, we've finally got to the, we've done the why. We're going to look at the what now. What does it look like? Well, it depends on who you are. Uh, so in our past, we've got men, we've got women, we've got older people, we've got younger people. And all of us fit into those categories somewhere, don't we? All of us are a man or a woman, transgender issues aside. Um, and all of us are older or younger. We're all on that spectrum, aren't we? Uh, how old is old? That's the, the question that always uh, makes me think uh, when, I, when I come to this. Where do I fit in? Am I an older man? Am I a younger man? Am I an older woman? Am I a younger woman? Well, the Bible doesn't give us a... I'm not a younger woman. Just a <laughs> right. um, The Bible doesn't give us a specific age. And I think that's deliberate. I've, I've read all sorts of different commentaries that give you different ages and they say, well, 30 is the cutoff point, 40 is the cutoff point. But I think the thing with age is that there's no immediate change, is there? Let me tell you something quite profound. <coughs> younger men gradually become older men. Younger women gradually become older women. You don't just sort of click overnight and suddenly you're a, an older man or an older woman. And if you think that you're sort of somewhere in the middle... I want to say as we listen to this, aspire to be the older. Okay, because that's going to be the, the much more challenging because it's expecting more maturity, more uh, of a godly life. But don't forget the younger either. Uh, you've probably got both if you're, you're somewhere in the middle. Uh, we're, we're going to look at uh, these four sort of sections that we've got there. Then we're going to look at two specific cases. Uh, but I encourage you all to listen in, even if it's not in your little section. 
Why? Well, so that you can pray. We're going to see what it's like living a godly life for these different groups of people. So you can pray for our younger women. So you can pray for our younger men. You can pray for our older men and older women as they live out godly lives. You, it informs us in how to pray for these people. It also informs us how to support them. If this is what they're to do, if we discover that they're supposed to be living in a certain way, we can help them. We can help each other. And also it allows us to hold one another to account at points as well. When Paul wrote this to Titus, he expected this to be read out to the whole church. He didn't sort of expect you to go off into a little group and you know the younger women get this bit and the older men get this bit. Actually, we're a community, aren't we? Not a collection of individuals. So there are things that we can do this morning uh, to help one another. And there are things that are in this passage that I cannot do as your pastor, that only you can do. So watch out for those as well. Now, with the older men, uh, I'll address them first, but like I say, everyone listen in. Um, the first thing is they're to be sober-minded. Now, all of these are going to begin with S. Uh, to help you remember them, so you can take it away, because there's going to be a lot of information this morning. Only had to change one of them, so it, it seems like I had to make them all S's. Uh, it's just right just not to have one that was out. But sober-minded. Now, in the scripture, that's contrasted with falling asleep. Uh, so it's, it's not the idea of, of sort of being sober, though it is linked uh, with the idea of, of alcohol, so the word sober can mean that. But normally in the Bible, it's the idea of not being drowsy. Uh, so, you know, you get those uh, uh, tablets that say, you know, do not operate heavy machinery. It's saying that a sober-minded man should be the kind of guy that could always handle heavy machinery. Uh, it's someone who's always alert, always uh, going. So it's not the idea of sober as in depressing. Uh, much more somber, isn't it? But these are guys that you can trust with heavy machinery. Uh, one translation puts it as an alert mind. So as much as within our power... Uh, obviously, as we get older, it's harder, isn't it, with our, our minds. Um, we're to be alert as much as we can. Older men are to have their brains switched on, in gear, ready to go. We're not to get lazy with our minds. And think about it in the context that Paul is writing. There are people going around spreading false truths, aren't they? Going around spreading false doctrine. The older men are to like to be the home guard, if you like, of the church. They're to be alert, they're to be vigilant, watching uh, for the, the enemy coming, if you like. They're a bit like Dad's Army, uh, but not quite as comical, hopefully, as the, uh, the sitcom. But the real one, the one that defended the nation, the one that, that stayed behind and watched, protecting the church and the family. It's the idea of being alert. And the older men, that's what they're to be. They're to be alert and watching for those problems, making sure that they're not uh, gaining ground. So they're to be sober-minded. They're to be serious. Uh, so serious, again, doesn't mean boring, but it means there's a gravity to this person. As Christians, we believe in serious things, don't we? We're not playing games as Christians. Uh, we believe in things that hold the keys to life and death, don't we? If you think about it, it's a bit like an action movie, isn't it? We, you know the action movies where there's always uh, some sort of code that they've got to enter at the last minute. <coughs> And, and only one person's got the code and they've got to get there, that idea. It's a bit like that. We hold an information that's really, really important. Actually, we hold the information about eternal life and eternal death. That's way more important than some code to, to some device. But it means then, if that's true, then our life is not a boring one, is it? Even though it's serious. It's a worthwhile life. 
If we could just grasp the excitement in a sense of what God has got for us. We live in that action movie. But sometimes we live as though we were on Coronation Street or Emmerdale. We forget who we really are. It's not a boring life that we lead, but we forget. It's a bit like, a. have you ever seen that film Hook? It was uh, out in the, the 90s. Uh, it's a sort of sequel to Peter Pan. And Peter Pan has uh, left Neverland and settled down and got married. And he's forgotten that he's Peter Pan. It's a bit like that with us. We, we can sometimes forget that actually we are given really serious, important truths. And we just settle down into normal life. It's like we're in Die Hard, but we've settled for a cup of tea and biscuits. There should be a seriousness to our lives. Because there's a serious thing that we have to do in our life. And especially the old men. As they are often are tasked with the preaching and, and defending of the church. So we're to be serious. I should have said, by the way, we are actually looking at the passage. As this is all in verse 2. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified. That word dignified, we've got a serious. The next thing is self-controlled. Self-controlled. Now, I must admit, I think I've always misunderstood this, this phrase. I've always associated it, really, with willpower. So, uh, if we think of self-control, we think of things like Lent. We're in the middle of, of Lent at the moment, aren't we? That's supposed to be a bit of a test of willpower. Uh, well, we have pancakes on Ash Wednesday, uh, so we're not doing very well uh, with that. But uh, it's the idea of, of, of willpower. But actually, um, that's not how it's used in the Bible. <coughs> Not just sort of bare willpower. So, for example, this phrase is used when demons are cast out of people in the Gospels. It says that they were, uh, well, for want of a better phrase, self-controlled here after they'd uh, had the demons cast out. In one of the Gospels, uh, sorry, one of the letters, Paul contrasts it with being out of his mind. So, if I'm out of my mind, it is for you. If I'm in self-controlled, it is for you. It doesn't quite fit, does it? You know, the demons are gone, now he's self-controlled. Uh, you know, now he's got willpower, he can stop eating chocolate. Um, you know, he's not crazy, he's got strong willpower. It just doesn't make sense, does it? Better to think of that phrase as being in control of himself. That fits with both, doesn't it? Uh, and it basically means older men are to be in control of their faculties. So it's uh, not to do with willpower to do with a mind that's renewed by the gospel. It fits then, doesn't it? The demons are gone. He's in control of himself. He's not crazy. He's in control of himself. It means we're able to control our sinful selves. So it's not the same function as just being able to give up smoking or drinking. Actually, it means positively in control of all his faculties. So there's no excuse saying, oh, I just don't have the willpower, because it's not the same thing that it's talking about. It's about actively being in control of yourselves. Next we have sound in faith. Let me just pause with, with sound to start with. Uh, we use that, well, young people use that word sometimes, you know, oh, sound, meaning it's, it's great. Uh, I don't imagine we'd have so many people use it that way probably this morning, uh, but it doesn't mean that. Um, actually, it's more the idea of a, a building inspector. So you know when a, a building inspector comes round and he has a look round at the, uh, the walls and the bricks and sort of starts to tap on them. And you say, oh yes, yes, your building is sound. You know, your wood is sound, no woodworm. In the Bible it's used uh, of the idea of healthiness. So in, in Luke's Gospel where it talks about it's not the uh, sick that need a doctor. Uh, sorry, it is the sick that need a doctor. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. 
that phrase there, healthy, is sound. So it's the idea of healthiness. We have that in the idea of safe and sound. If someone's safe and sound, it means they're healthy. So the older men are to be sound in faith. Now, faith and belief are the same word in the Bible, but I don't believe this is talking about our beliefs, because it's already talked about the fact that we're to be uh, holding to sound doctrine. But it's more sound belief. So he's not just to teach them to have sound beliefs, sound doctrine, but sound belief. He's to teach them to have a healthy faith. What does a healthy faith look like? Well, a healthy faith is rooted in God, isn't it? Especially in his work in Christ. It's in the right place. Healthy faith rests on God. So that through our lives, uh, we can trust in him when when the, the, the difficulties come. And healthy faith takes risks, doesn't it? It's like a muscle. We exercise our faith. Uh, we trust in God for our lives and we take risks for him. So imagine the inspector coming round. How's the faith? Ah, sounds. Rooted in God, resting on God and taking risks. That's what sound faith looks like. But it's not just sound in faith, sound in love as well. That phrase continues. So sound in faith, in love. I wonder how much effort we put in as Christians to being sound in love as we do to being sound in doctrine. Have you ever thought about what it means to be sound in love? Is our love healthy? Titus was to teach them to have a healthy love. Is it love for God or is it love for one another? Well, it's both, isn't it? Because actually, just like love and marriage right at the beginning, uh, those two always go together. Love for God always shows itself in love for others. But we're to be sound, especially older men, are to be sound in love. And then finally, they're to be sound in steadfastness. Now, the idea here is perseverance under trials. And that, in one sense, can only be learned by experience, can't it? As we go through trials. But it's about having a solid foundation so that we won't get shaken in our trials. It's like the man who built his house on the rock, isn't it? Then the inspector comes, foundations are solid, he'll stand in trials. So they're to be keeping going. Even in the midst of all sorts of different problems, older men are to be tried and tested and able to keep going, even when things are really hard. To be able to defend the church, to be able to keep the church going. So that's older men. They all begin with S. I couldn't make the older women all begin with S, I'm afraid. Uh, But I did make them spell Anna. Um, (laughs) And Anna in the Bible is an 84-year-old woman uh, who's waiting for the kingdom of God. So I thought that was quite appropriate, if you want to remember. You're to be an Anna. So Anna, A, appropriate. So let me read the verse to you, uh, verse 3. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behaviour, not arrogant, sorry, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. So firstly, they are to be appropriate. Um, the word there in, in the passage where it says uh, to be reverent in behaviour, it's really the idea of being appropriate. Uh, it's linked with the word for temple as well. So it's sort of a, appropriate for the temple. That's why it's got the word reverent in there. The idea of what, what the way you'd behave uh, at a temple. You might say it's sort of church-worthy behaviour. What they do in their life is like what they do at church. What they do in church is like what they do in their lives. There's a consistency. Their lives are church-worthy, uh, if you like. It's probably better to think of it the other way around. Don't be inappropriate. We know that there are inappropriate old ladies. Uh, we've all met them. Older women, please 
don't be inappropriate old ladies. Younger women don't grow into inappropriate uh, old ladies. You to be have lives that are reverent, that fit with, with church, that fit with the temple. Secondly, there's not to be not fault finding. Now this is how I've translated that uh, phrase, not slanderous. The literal word there is diabolos, uh, which is where we get our word devil from. That's uh, like something is diabolical, uh, same word. Um, but it's not saying that older women aren't to be devils. That would be a little bit of a strange uh, thing to say. But the word devil means an accuser. Uh, so here it's translated slander, or in other translations it's translated a false accuser. But the phrase there is just accuser, somebody who accuses. So I wonder here if there's just a sense of accusation. Now of course that means don't falsely accuse. That might be a specific problem on Crete. But I don't think it's, generally as I've known older women, that doesn't tend to be a problem, uh, false accusations. But older women can be accusing can't they? You know, this is wrong, this is wrong, uh, that's not right. Constantly accusing, constantly finding fault. Now, as I'm saying that, stop thinking about your mother or your mother-in-law. This could be you one day. It could be you now, for all I know. And it's saying, don't go there. Don't be one of those people who is constantly accusing, finding fault. And certainly don't be those who slander and find false accusations. Thirdly, not wine slaves. That's the literal phrase there, a wine slave. Uh, Again, it's uh, an age-old problem, uh, older women and their booze. Uh, We know that there are situations uh, through history where this has been a a big national problem. I don't think it's there saying that this is specific to wine. Uh, You can't get around it that way. It would apply to gin, uh, to lager, vodka, whatever your tipple of choice. Being a Bacardi slave is no better than being a wine slave. Incidentally, just on the side, this does imply that wine uh, in the Bible isn't just everyday grape juice. Uh, It would be strange, wouldn't it, if you were saying don't drink much wine, if that was just a normal drink uh, of the day. Actually, this is something that's addictive, that can get you drunk. But it's not saying don't drink. It's saying be careful. Watch yourself. Do you find yourself at the end of the day saying, "I, I need a drink, rather than I want one? How often do you drink? Every day? Could you stop drinking? If you're not sure, perhaps it would be good to try just to see if you can do that. I think it's unlikely this morning that we have many uh, binge drinkers. But we could probably, I imagine, have a few of us who could go through a bottle or two of Chardonnay in an evening. It seems different, doesn't it? We, you know, you watch on the television the sort of people uh, going through Leeds City Centre, falling apart and all that. But actually, this is just a different symptom of the same problem and it's not becoming of an older Christian woman so we're not to be wine slaves so be careful and then finally for an older woman they're to be apt to to teach younger women so there at the end of our verse they have to teach what is good and so train the young women to and then goes on to the younger women but here women are to be teachers they're to teach the younger women This is something Titus isn't to do. And it's something as a pastor, I think I I take that as an extension, it's not what I'm to do. Actually, the older women are there to teach the younger women. I imagine as a younger man, Titus going to teach younger women would be difficult, uh, would pose all sorts of questions. And there are some things that Titus just isn't going to be able to teach. 
There are some things that you just can't learn in a seminar, aren't there? Things that you learn in life. You can't just get someone in to do a session on, you know, this is what you're to live like. What it's really saying here is that older women have to model what it's like to be an older woman, what it's like to be a godly woman. They're to explain what they do as, go, as they go along. It's not to be word, wordless, if you like. Actions only go so far. But they're to model what is good. They're to put flesh on the words of scripture. I know uh, so many uh, young church plants that you hear about, they struggle often because they don't have many Annas. Do they? they don't have many older women to show the younger women how to be a godly woman. Now, that's not excluding seminars and formal days. It's great to have women's days and women's conferences. It's a great extension to this. But the bulk of this work is done in the local church. As older women model to younger women what it's like to be a godly woman, a mature woman. And it's learnt by seeing older women do what they do in life. Um, Older women have to be around younger women and showing them what it's like. Now, older women, you need to listen up in the next section because this is going to tell you what you're supposed to teach them, what you're supposed to show them. It literally says there to teach them what is good. Now, it's not the normal word for good there. You could translate that, what is beautiful. The older women are to teach the younger women what's beautiful in life, what that godliness looks like. So what are they to teach the younger women? Uh, I'm sorry, I couldn't make these all the same letter, uh, but I've tried to group them together in letters so it might be a little bit more memorable. They're to love their husbands. Love their husbands. This is a surprising thing to say in a way, isn't it? You'd be thinking, well, surely you love your husband. That's by definition, isn't it? But especially in their culture, they didn't always get the choice of who their husband would be. And more than that, if they're to teach them to love their husbands, what does that actually look like? Is it just to be really affectionate to them? Is it to be like a a Stepford wife? I don't know if you've seen that film, where it turns out actually they're all robots Uh, just automatically doing what their husbands say. Is that what it looks like to be uh, loving to your husband? Love is more than affection. It's not less, but it's more. Love shows itself in words, in deeds. And you want to see what that looks like, look at a godly older woman, the way that she loves her husband. And the younger women will learn as they see it. And it's good to be reminded, isn't it, what it means to love your husband when they've left their clothes on the floor again. When they've traced mud through the house, what does it look like to love your husband then? When they've forgotten that special date, how do you love your husband then? Learn from older godly women. As a pastor, I can't teach you that because I'm not an older godly woman. (coughs) But to teach them to love their children. Again, I also can't model to you what it's like to be a godly mother. It's just not in my DNA, quite literally. Younger women have to love their husbands. And you want to say, well, again, isn't that anything more natural? Don't, don't young women love their husbands? But is it all that natural? You read the horror stories on the news, don't you, about what mothers have done to their children. They're just the ones that make the headlines. What does it mean to love your child as well? Is it giving them everything that they want? Is it having them programmed with a whistle, like on the sound of music, so they all stand up straight when you blow it? Actually, we need to learn what it looks like. And we learn from our, we learn from our family, don't we? We learn from our own parents. That's good and right. But we learn from our wider family. We learn from our church family. We see older godly women care for their children. And we learn in advance from them. So, you know, we can learn what it's like to care for a teenager. 
uh, before they're a teenager. We can learn from their mistakes. We can learn from them. What, you know, what does it look like to love your child when they're sick? What does it look to love, like, look, love your child when they're naughty? What does it look like to love your child when they're not interested in church? When they don't want to pray? There's much to learn from the Bible, isn't there, about those things? But we can see that lived out in the lives of our older women. Nextly, they're, they're to look after the home. Look after the home. Now, this is a bit of a controversial one. It's literally a home keeper. The ESPs translated it as uh, working at home. And uh, it's a bit ambiguous, really. Uh, I'm fine with a bit of ambiguity there. It stops us being legalists, doesn't it, if we're not entirely uh, sure what it's getting at. But the question really is, does it mean that she does the housework, or does it mean that she works in the house? That's really where the, uh, the rubber hits the road. But I want to say, firstly, that the old world knew no such clear distinctions. Most work was done from home. So if you look at the woman in Proverbs 31, she's working all the time, but she's doing it from her house. Think about people in the Bible. Lydia is a maker of purple cloth. Priscilla works as a tent maker. There are all sorts of women who work, but they would be family businesses. They'd be ones where everybody chipped in. So what does it mean for us then? Well, I think the best way to think about it is to be home orientated. It's not a prohibition on working mums. Women have to consider how to fit everything that they've got to do together, don't they? They need to think about how does it fit with loving their husbands and children. Can they work? Are they able to? Now, it might mean, one, uh, in one context, working, so that their husband can devote themselves to more time at, at church things, for example. I know uh, a couple whose the wife worked while the husband was at Bible college, and he looked after the kids. Uh, or it might be to earn enough money to live in an area of gospel need, so that both people need to work. Or it might mean choosing not to work, so that they can devote their time to their children and their home. And I know that that means big decisions, doesn't it? It's not just saying, all right, we'll just do that. Actually, that will affect what you do with your size of house, what job your husband gets, how many holidays you choose to go on. All those things are affected by those decisions, aren't they? They're not easy. We decided Caroline should stay at home uh, while the children are small because we wanted the best woman on the job to love them, to raise them, to teach them about Jesus. But others might come to other conclusions. But we must take this command seriously, whatever it means. They're to be home-orientated. Fourthly, they're to be self-controlled. We won't spend a lot of time on this because we've already explained that a little bit with older men. Uh, all the way through we have that phrase, likewise, which gives us a clue that it's not like we can just ignore the other ones. But it means to be in control of herself. In all that life throws at her through those other things, uh, she's to be in control of herself. Submissive to her husband. Not just to love her husband, but to submit to him. And again, I'd love to spend a load of time on this, but because there's so much this morning, if you want to know more about that, have a look at uh, the talks that we did on Ephesians uh, last year. They'll tell you lots uh, about that. But they're to be submissive to their husbands. They're to be pure. That's the idea of clean. It's related to the word for holy. So young women are to be pure. Now, when I read this through, I was thinking, well, isn't this more the one for younger men? That was what went into my mind. Uh, don't, isn't it the younger men that needed to be uh, pure? But it's a reminder not to be naive about human nature. Actually, young women need to be pure as well. We see more and more, don't we, in our culture, the sexualization of young women. 
Now the media gets up and about it when you see it with pre-teens, don't they? With the clothes that they can buy and things like that. But we mustn't forget that it's inappropriate for younger women who are older as well. Uh, unless it's with their husbands and only with their husbands. Actually, we, women's got to, uh, younger women have to fight to, to go against that trend of, of sexualization of women. So they're to be pure and they're to be kind. Literally good. It's not just an absence of bad, it means characterized by good works. Actively working for good. So that is younger women. Now don't worry, the younger men is a little bit shorter. They're to be self-controlled. You see that? Uh, So in verse 6 it says, Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. This is good for uh, young men, uh, if that includes myself as well, because apparently, of course, men can only concentrate on one thing at once. Um, But here we have it, self-controlled. And I think it is really something that young men struggle with. It really does take a lot of energy for young men to be self-controlled. When we think of young men often with problems with temper, with lust, with greed. In all those things, we need self-control, to be in control of ourselves. If young men could actually deal with this, a lot of the problems of young men would disappear overnight, wouldn't they? So pray for self-control for younger men. And it's an easy one because there's only one thing to remember. That's what we need to focus on. So lastly, and far more briefly, we're going to look at two special cases for, um, uh, for different people. The first one is leaders. So we're looking here at verses, verse 1 and verse 7. I'll read verse 1 to you again. But as for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And then down to verse 7. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity and dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned. So one thing links all these commands together. We've got teach godliness, model good works, integrity in teaching, dignity in teaching, sound speech in teaching. You'll notice there that as a leader, which Titus was, the thing that links them all together is teaching. All of them have to do with how he teaches. The way that a leader lives out the gospel, he does those other things as well from uh, the section across, but the way that he does it is through teaching. That's how he lives out the gospel. That includes modelling the gospel, living it out. He models it and he mouths it. He teaches the truth to others. And that also includes teaching its implications for their lives. That's what we see in verse 1. What accords with sound doctrine, what goes with it. That's what we're doing this morning. So this is how a leader leads, through teaching. This is how a pastor pastors, through teaching. So it's no surprise that Paul has a lot to say about how Titus is to teach. He's to teach with integrity. He's to practice what he preaches. It's literally incorruptibility uh, in his teaching. He's to do it with dignity. That's the same word we had for seriousness earlier. There's a gravity to it. Not frivolous, not treated lightly. And he's to do it with soundness of speech. Healthy speech, that word sound again. You can knock it. And it's sound, not careless with what he teaches. So that's what a leader is to be, to hold your leaders to account. And then slaves. Now, when we've looked at this before, we said this is similar to employees. Just let me go through these really quickly. Uh, I'll read it to you from the passage first. Verse 9, bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. 
So there's to be no no's. They're all going to start with no. As in, no! They're not going to be those who are disobedient to their masters and tell them that they're not going to do it. It means to submit to them in those contexts. There's to be no disappointing. That's the way that I've explained that second part. There's to be there to be well-pleasing. So there's not to get the, as an employee, they're not to keep getting the, the little conversation that they you know, get taken to one side and say, that was very disappointing. They're to be well-pleasing uh, to their masters. No back chat. They're not to talk back to their uh, employers or, or masters. No smart talk. No borrowing. Uh, that's how I've translated pilfering, which is really the idea of, of, of stealing, of, of defrauding your employer or your boss. And then finally, no reason to doubt. They're to be showing good faith. And do you see what happens there? What will be the effect? Well, it tells us there at the end where we, where we began with. So that in everything we may adorn the doctrine of God, our saviour. That will be the effect of these lives lived out. Uh, of slaves doing that, of, or employees doing that. If you're employed, let me ask you a question. How close is your boss to becoming a Christian? We often talk about colleagues, but this is actually talking about your boss. Do they see how you live differently in the workplace? Why bother living differently? When it means not getting ahead like your colleagues are. When it means being seen as a stick stick in the mud. Well, it might just be that God is using your life, your godliness in your workplace, to begin someone's journey to Christ. So why bother with godliness in the workplace, Uh, As a leader, as a man, as a woman, as a young person, as an old person. Well, what a huge difference that we see this morning. Uh, What a huge region, sorry. Is that it could mean the difference between life and death for someone. Between heaven and hell. No godliness. Little chance of them believing the gospel. Godliness and effective evangelism go hand in hand. Now, this isn't the only reason to live a godly life. This is just the one that we're seeing this morning. Richard will be taking us through the next reason uh, as we look at the second half of this passage. But this is a really good one, isn't it? To live a godly life. We should be living godly lives because it adorns the gospel that we preach. So let's pray for God's strength.